Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark. I'm one of the hosts on the network. And today I'm interviewing Mark Lawrence Schrod for the Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery podcast. Dr. Schrod is an associate professor of political science at Villanova University and is the author of Smashing the Liquor Machine, A Global History of Prohibition, which is the third book in a trilogy and is just out from Oxford University Press. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. This is going to be fun. I wonder if you could begin our interview by telling us just a little bit about yourself um, and how you came to study prohibition. Oh, you know, I'm originally from the Midwest, from Iowa. Um, Not that that has any relevance to the to the prohibition angle. Uh, did my undergraduate work at, at the University of Northern Iowa and uh, had a, a big interest in Russia, Russian politics. Um, and uh, so I started going to Russia in the 1990s, you know, learned Russian, spent a lot of time there. That was that was kind of my focus. Um, and if you spend any time in Russia, uh, you, you start to learn about vodka really quickly <laughs> and sort of the, uh, you know, the, the social impacts that it has. And, and um, so I was I was really interested in. Uh, sort of that that core question of you know alcohol consumption, like why do why do Russians drink so much vodka? Um, and so that was kind of the uh, sort of the framework uh, that kind of led me down sort of these different academic paths. I went and got my master's degree at uh, at Georgetown. Worked with uh, a guy named Murray Feshbach, uh, who's a wonderful human. Uh, he's just a, he was sort of the, um, you know, sort of the cream of the crop of Russian demographers, uh, or demographers of Russia when it comes to health and, um, you know, uh, health and epidemiology. And, and so the guy just had a, a knack for finding sort of the inside information first about the Soviet Union, then about Russia. Um, and uh, so, you know, that's kind of set me on this, you know, this, uh, this, this focus on uh, sort of the confluence of alcohol and, and politics uh, and history in, in many ways in, in, in sort of global context. Um, and so that's just kind of where the whole thing began. And it is kind of stuck with me through my dissertation and then my first couple of books. 
Um, so, you know, one was kind of this focus on Russia and Russian politics. The other was on, uh, you know, alcohol and, and alcohol politics, just, you know, even in terms of being very, very young and taking courses in civics and history, you know, the, the whole idea of, you know, I looked at the, uh, you know, the, the U S constitution is kind of like the received wisdom of generations of, of Americans about sort of best practices, um, you know, and then you go through all the amendments and they all sort of make sense, you know, as, as you go through and, and we're trying to f- fix things and make things, you know, better. 13th Amendment's, uh, you know, abolishing slavery, 14th Amendment's equal rights. And then, you know, 16th Amendment's you're getting into taxation and, you know, and then you get to the 18th Amendment and it says, you know, uh, no selling alcohol. And I was like, what? Mm-hmm. That, that doesn't seem to make any sense. Okay. Okay. Well, whatever, you know, just kind of keep going. 19th Amendment. Okay. Women can vote. Makes sense. Okay, good. And they get to 21st Amendment. It's like, oh yeah, forget that 18th. I'm like, okay, well, what happened there? You know, this, yeah. <laughs> none of this makes any sense to me in, in hindsight. So I, you know, uh, so that became sort of the, the focus of trying to understand prohibition politics in, in sort of a broader and more comparative context. So tell us about Smashing the Liquor Machine in particular and how you came to write this book. So, yeah, so this was sort of the outcome of, of the, you know, the, the whole process. Um, I wanted to recognize that uh, a lot of the narratives that we have about alcohol politics in the United States just don't make any sense when you apply them to the rest of the world. Um, so sort of the conventional wisdom about you know, why did we have alcohol prohibition in the United States? What was that 18th Amendment all about? Um, you know, the historical conventional wisdom is that uh, if you want to explain uh, prohibitionism in the United States, well, you just have to look at Bible-thumping, conservative, Midwestern, evangelical Protestants. Um, and I was like, okay, well, coming from Russia, you know, Russia was the first country in the world to have prohibition, and they don't have any Bible-thumping, Midwestern, evangelical Protestants. Uh and in fact, you know, knowing a little bit about the, the Russian case and having a, already written a book on it, um, I, I was finding just the exact opposite, that it was, uh, you know, sort of it was the an anti-authoritarian movement. So people like Leo Tolstoy were prohibitionists and Lenin was a prohibitionist. And these are not Bible thumpers. These are not evangelicals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was like, OK, well, uh you know, and, and knowing just a little bit about some of these different other kind of global experiences, I wanted to say, okay, well, we think we know what causes prohibition in the American context. Let's put that on the shelf for now. Um, what interested me, I was like, okay, let's, let's look and see what causes prohibition in the rest of the world. And, uh, and then at the end of the day, see if there's anything that we can learn from sort of the international experience that we can use to enrich, uh, sort of our American, you know, history. And, and, um, and so that was the idea. Uh, originally was just to kind of look around the globe um, and see what what prohibition looks like in Germany and you know sort of the German Empire the Austro-Hungarian Empire or the British Empire look at look at it in India and Australia and, and um, uh, you know South Africa and Ireland and see see what it is you know in all these different places um, and the original proposal was only about half as long as the the full book was supposed to be it's only supposed to be like eight chapters mm-hmm and then, you know, just like a, a nice, tidy, you know, conclusion chapter of, hey, you know, we've just t- kind of taken a, a tour around the globe and looked at temperance and prohibition politics. And this is what we learn. And this is how it applies um, to the United States. 
but something weird happens when you do that is that it completely upends, you know, the entire understanding of of temperance and prohibition as a conservative, um, you know, reactionary movement against you know immigration and, uh, and and modernization, which is kind of the way that's couched in the United States. Um, but you find really quickly that it was uh, just the opposite. It was a, a revolutionary movement in many ways. It was, um, you know, temperance was kind of this weapon of the weak and the oppressed. It was, uh, you know, anybody who didn't have political power, um, you know, rallied around this, um, you know, opposition to uh, sort of the, the predatory capitalism of, you know, uh, uh, what you know they talk about is the liquor machine. You know, it's not just the alcohol, it's the the business of making outlandish profits based upon, um, you know, getting people addicted to stuff. Uh, and so once you take that viewpoint, you're like, oh, okay, wait a minute. This is, you know, completely opposite from what I was ever told. Um, and you start to see American history in sort of a completely new light. And it, it you know, you start to recognize that, um, you know, not only are the roots of prohibitionism in the United States much, much deeper than we're conventionally told, but it's much more, diverse than what we're conventionally told. Um, and so, you know, that's where, you know, this, um, you know, I, I kind of gave a presentation here in the department once with sort of the, what was the first half of the book. And I thought was, you know, the entire book at that point in time. And, um, you know, one of my colleagues sat down and she says, okay, well, if, if I'm to believe your thesis that temperance and prohibitionism was not about, you know, conservative Bible thumping evangelicals, but it was a movement of, you know, sort of uh, indigenous protection and women's rights and uh, African-American rights, civil rights um, and uh, sort of indigenous protections. Um, she says, where are the Native Americans in your story? And I was like, I don't I don't have a good answer to that. And that's <laughs> that was the moment where this book essentially doubled in length. Um, is like, okay, well, I have to, I should go and look at that to, you know, see if this thesis holds water in the United States. We should look at sort of these indigenous communities. We should look at uh, Native American populations. Um, and it, once you do that, you find that, you know, the, the first prohibitionists in this country were Native Americans. And, and uh, you know, that entire lineage of prohibitionism goes back e- even before the founding of the United States. And so that's where it became like this Okay, well, we have to now look at sort of the, the very deep elements of uh, American history as in addition to sort of a, a global history as well. You have a great quote. I'm just going to read it right now. I'll just read your book back to you. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that really sums that up. You say the history of American temperance and prohibition stretches back many generations before the 19th and, t- and early 20th centuries, which is when most traditional prohibitions histories began. And rather than temperance being an effort by white evangelicals to quote unquote discipline marginalized and minority communities, it was an effort led by those very communities to oppose their own political and economic subjugation. Um, so quite anyway, that that's, that's quite a claim. I, um, I, the t- subtitle of this book is a global history of prohibition. I feel like it could also be everything you think, you know, about prohibition is wrong. Um, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about, what is the dominant historical narrative about alcohol prohibition? Where does it come from? 
um, and then what's wrong with it. And here, this is New Books Network. So if you wanna, if you wanna get in the weeds and talk about Richard Hofstadter, you know, that's that's perfectly fine. <laughs> Sure. Yeah, it's uh, I should say that the subtitle is kind of a lie. Um, you know, the, the book is it's a global history of it says it's prohibition, but it's actually prohibitionism, Right. It's uh, my interest was uh, in sort of the motivations, what led people to, uh, you know, to uh, be on, on the side of temperance and prohibitionism. Um, and so it doesn't really get into, you know, there's no. Al Capone, it kind of ends with the 18th Amendment, right? So it doesn't go into that, you know, the the 13-year span of looking at, um, you know, sort of speakeasies and jazz age stuff that you get in like, you know, the Ken Burns documentary series as as much. Um, I was just more interested in trying to figure out what motivated these people um, and how we could better understand, you know, the, the process of getting, you know, um, you know, not only a constitutional amendment passed, and all the you know hurdles that go with that, but also, you know, sort of the international elements of this this uh, sort of this transnational movement um, in in that way. So um, so yeah, it was you know in terms of you know the, like I said, the conventional wisdom uh, in in the United States has been for a long time that this was sort of this conservative evangelical movement. I remember when um, you know in 2016 in November 2016 when when Donald Trump uh, was elected. Um, you know, watching, uh, you know, and a lot of people were shocked, obviously, by this this electoral outcome. And 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 CNN contributor Van Jones was on on TV, and he said that um, he had this this great phrase. It was, he said this was uh, a white lash against um, you know sort of uh, a changing uh, United States. That's what the election of Donald Trump was. It was sort of a rejection of sort of multiculturalism and 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 all these sorts of things by sort of white nativist conservative evangelicals. And I was like, that is a perfect, you know, in that one word, white lash that essentially summed up the, you know, the, the dominant approach, the received wisdom on why we had prohibitionism. You know, it was this, you know, the, the way we're told is that it was this, um, you know, a, a movement, uh, you know, sort of the last gasp, a symbolic crusade of, you know, again, Midwestern conservative evangelicals, uh, looking to discipline the leisure of other communities, other religions, other you know immigrants and and uh, minority populations in the United States, um, and so that you know that has just been kind of like I said the the received wisdom just doesn't really hold up uh, internationally all that well. Um, I had a, a colleague of mine and I was um, at a conference in London and kind of presenting some of the. Um, uh, the early results of these um, uh, these insights that hey maybe this wasn't you know a, a conservative evangelical movement um, and uh, a, a colleague of mine who's now I, I count as a, a close friend um, she had just finished her dissertation in in Mexico she teaches in, in Mexico City um, looking at uh, her question was uh, in Mexico why is it in 1917 uh, in in Mexico you've got a predominantly Catholic country. Um, in 1917, they have, you know, they've gone through the revolution. They've had um, a uh, a very ultra progressive uh, constitution at that point in time, and it had provisions uh, against, you know, alcohol, against the the liquor traffic in uh, Mexico. Um, and so she says, okay, well, you know, I was interested in this question of why we have restrictions on alcohol in Mexico. So 
uh, I borrowed from the Americans. You know, the Americans know what causes temperance and prohibitionism in their country, we would assume. Um, and so the, the Americans tell us that prohibitionism is, uh, you know, caused by uh, Bible thumpers, right? Evangelical Protestants. Um, and so she focused her entire dissertation on searching for uh, essentially American missionaries in in Mexico as the explanation for this outcome. And she found maybe like 20 of them in the entire country. Uh, there weren't a whole lot and certainly not enough to sort of, you know, change the course of, you know, sort of constitution of, of Mexico. Um, and she, I remember she said, you know, I really wish that we had had this understanding beforehand um, because it would have made my world, you know, her work a whole lot um, easier on that side. So, um, so that was kind of, you know, the, the approach uh, was to, um, kind of uh, take this idea that we know a lot about ourselves and our own history um, and just kind of, like I said, just kind of put that on the shelf and try to understand what's going on in the rest of the globe and see whether or not it actually holds up in an American context. Okay, well, that that's a, a really nice segue to my next question, um, which is for our listeners who can't see the book as we're having this conversation, it is a tome. It is 735 pages long. It is the kind of book where just sort of carrying it around with me made me feel smarter, made me feel like a smarter person that I was, you know, amassing all of this history. Um and I wonder if you could tell us about your research and writing process, because you you visited a lot of archives. It's international in scope, um, but you position Smashing the Liquor Machine as a work of comparative politics rather than of history. So can you tell us a little bit about why? Sure. So uh, <laughs> it's been unusual in this way, right? So uh, I'm, you know, I got my PhD in, in 2007 uh, from the University of Wisconsin in, in political science. So I guess by that account, I'm a political scientist, not a historian. Um, and I recognize that, uh, you know, academics in many ways are very territorial, right? So historians, I, I like to think about it in terms of sandboxes. You know, we don't, historians don't like it when political scientists play in their sandbox. Uh, political scientists don't like it when economists play in our sandbox, right? We it's just, it's very bizarre and very territorial. But uh, within the discipline of political science, there are very few people who are interested in the topic of alcohol politics and prohibitionism. Uh, there's just nobody out here doing it, right? And so I end up oftentimes being like the only uh, political scientist or somebody with political science training in the social sciences uh, at, at conferences full of historians. Um, and what I hope I can bring to the table, um, you know, I think the, the difference between the two disciplines is, you know, it, it is, is more of, a, of an approach, right? And sort of a methodology more than anything else. Um, and so history, I think nowadays is, is more about sort of getting into uh, sort of the nitty gritty. What was, you know, what were experiences like? Um, you know, I remember I, I sat down with a, a, a top historian, of Russia. And, and when I was reading my, writing my previous book on, on vodka politics. Um, and, uh, I wanted to pick his brain cause this is a guy who's written five books on the Russian revolutions, right. You know, the Bolshevik revolution. Um, and so I invited him out for beers. And so we went out, had some beers and, and I, I wanted to, to pick his brain. I said, okay, so I'm going to write this chapter on the Russian revolution. Um, tell me 
what is sort of the, the state of the art in the, in history when it comes to the causes of the Russian revolution. Um, and he just kind of laughed at me, you know, in a, in a nice way, not a mocking way and anything like that. Uh, he says, he says, Mark, nobody in, in history has asked that question in 30 years. You know, what caused the Russian revolution? We're not interested in causation in history. He's like, that's what political science does. They want to ask these how, what, where, when, why questions, you know, what causes revolutions to happen and, um, you know, trying to, uh, understand these things in sort of a, a broader, more comparative context. And he says, uh, you know, for historians, you know, the, the cutting edge of history on the Russian revolution is, you know, what was it like to be a worker in Petrograd in 1917? What was that kind of finely grained, uh, historical experience like? Um, and I love those works. I love to read those works. Um, but it, it doesn't answer those questions that I have, which are, uh, again, sort of a, of a, a broader uh, sort of causal element. What causes prohibition? What causes revolutions uh, to happen? And so, uh, you know, so I spend and I, I teach a lot of courses that try to suss out this question of causation. You know, what leads to you know, this, this particular outcome? Um, and so, you know, when it comes to, uh, I, I guess, this question of prohibition and prohibitionism, uh, for me, it came down to one of, of sample size, right? So uh, if you think about it, you know, we can get into American history um, and look at prohibition in, in, in the United States. But ultimately, if you take a broader global perspective, just focusing in on the United States, that's a sample size of one, right? And uh, it's the, the question then is, how representative is this single sample of this one case that we have of of prohibition in the United States. Um, and so the approach uh, then was not so much to take what we think we know from a single sample and then try to extrapolate it to the rest of the world, like we did with, uh, you know, my friend did in, in, in Mexico. Um, you know, if we want a more reliable understanding of what's causing what, we take a bigger, broader sample, just like, you know, you would if you're a, a pollster, right? You get a more representative um, understanding if you take a sample of, you know, 500 likely voters in, you know, in terms of what they're going to vote in the 2022 midterms, as opposed to just asking, you know, your crazy uncle, right? <laughs> your crazy uncle may not be representative of sort of the broader elements. And so, so that was the idea. It was like, I want to figure out, I want to take a bigger, broader sample. I want to see what prohibitionism is like in the rest of the world, rather than extrapolating from a sample size of one. Um, and then see if there's anything we can generalize and, and, and kind of take from take from that. So that was my hope is, you know, saying that this was a work of comparative politics rather than being just sort of a, a, a work of history. It's not just kind of looking at one, you know, uh, one case after another, but it was, you know, I want to sample, I want to look at, you know, uh, not just what's going on in the United States. I want to look at what's going on in the Russian empire. I want to look at what's going on in Sweden and in Belgium and in uh, Germany and Austria uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. I want to look at the Turkish, you know, the Ottoman Empire. I want to look at South Africa and India and Australia, and I want to look at all these different experiences to make sure that we have a broader, rep more representative sample of what the actual causal dynamics are in that case. And so that was that was the idea behind it. That was the approach, and that's uh, again more of a um, you know sort of a comparative politics approach to uh, you know to to a question rather than sort of a more narrow historical approach to it. 
And, and so the methodolo- methodological approach really also um, informs the, the book's structure, which I think is, is quite creative. So for our listeners, um, Smashing the Liquor Machine has three parts, and it's kind of cyclical, I would say, in the sense that it begins with the United States and then it ends with the United States. The first section of the book is called The Continental Empires and has a focus on Russian history. The second section of the book is called The British Empire and focuses on British colonialism. And then the third and final section of the book sort of brings us back to um, the United States and um, what we can glean, um, uh, you know, what we can say about U.S. history having taken a broader and more global view. Um, why do we need to learn about temperance and prohibition in Russia and in Russian and in British history before we can really fully understand the history of prohibition in the United States? Yeah, I mean, part of it is is like a, you know, this is a journey, really, you know, more than anything. Uh, I think before I, I got into you know, sort of the, the academic enterprise, I just always assumed that, you know, when, when you see a book, that this is something that, you know, the author knew, you know, that they had all this knowledge and then they just kind of funnel it in there and they package it up nicely and so on. Um, and that, I don't think that's the case. Certainly is not the case in my uh, in estimation. Right. And so um, or in my situation, it was it was more uh, I've got this question and I want to go find an answer to it. And so the book is kind of it's more of a journey kind of taking you through this this whole thing. And so. It really was, in many ways, sort of you know the, the journey to to learning more about ourselves. And I guess that's the the other standard trope that you hear about, like you know, comparative politics and, and study abroad opportunities that we go abroad to learn more about ourselves because there's always that kind of implicit comparison. You know, if you're doing uh, if you're studying abroad in in India or studying abroad in Prague or, or wherever it is, um, you know that there's always this kind of oh okay, well this is what's going on in this country. Um, I wonder how that's different from you know, what I was told or what, you know, how, how I understand politics or, or history or culture and so on and so forth. Um, so that's, you know, that, that was kind of the, uh, you know, sort of the, the broader approach. And I think it's important, um, you know, I guess uh, another element that came out of this is that there, you know, there are 18 chapters in the book um, and, uh, you know, and it is a huge book and I apologize. <laughs> it's like, it's really a great book. It's, it, it all needs to be there. <laughs> yeah. And that, that was the thing is, is that, uh, you know, people had su- suggested that, Hey, you know, half the book is on American politics and half of it, it's sort of international politics. Why don't you make it two books? Um, and, uh, well, for one, you know, I was under contract for one book and so they have been <laughs> <laughs> weren't exactly going to let me get away with it. But even if they could, I, I, I think that um, especially like for an American audience, um, you know, we tend to focus so much on our own history and that, that sort of narrowness is like it doesn't make sense unless it all comes together. Right. You know, that and, and throughout the book, I, I've got like these these shout outs, you know, that, you know, that's, uh, you know, if you're reading a section on, you know, uh, on uh, sort of the social uh, gospel socialism in the United States. Um, you know, it's hard to understand that without knowing a little bit about Leo Tolstoy. Right. And so I'll have a shout out saying, okay, you know, you know, making reference to chapter two, where we talk about Tolstoy or chapter seven, where we're talking about Gandhi and talking about all these different things. Um, because, you know, I'll I'll just interject here and say, this is very helpful. There are these parentheticals throughout the Mm -hmm. entire book where, um, Mark kind of redirects the reader 
to where themes come up in other places. So like see chapter two, see chapter one, see. So um, the way that it's all woven together is, um, is really elegant. Anyway, go on. <laughs> and I thought, you know, actually for a while, I thought, you know, when it came out in, um, <laughs> I bounced this thought off my uh, editor and he was not as enamored with it as I was, but I was like, what if we made those hyperlinks and then you could do like a, you know, make your own story uh, or, or build your own adventure. Right. And so you could be reading through, you know, chapter seven and then it says, you know, uh, you know, here's a reference to, uh, you know, here's a reference to Tolstoy in chapter two. And then you could click on that and it would take you to that part. Right. And so you could just kind of explore it in a multidirectional way rather than having it be one chapter after another. Uh, and he's like, no, that's not how books work. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> we're not going to change how we, how a book works you know, in 2021. All right. But, um, you know, but it was, it was an idea, right. That you know, we've got these, these uh, sort of shout outs. Um, and, and part of it uh, is again, that I think it, it needs to make sense altogether. Um, and, you know, to, to have those other experiences, um, you know, and, and part of it was to sort of short circuit some of these critiques that I'm sure would be coming um, that say, OK, well, that's all well and good for for Russia or that's all well and good for Sweden. But I'm interested in the United States. And this is what we think is happening. It's like, well, no, we you know, you, you can't take sort of the American experience um, and put it up on a pedestal and completely discount everything else that's out there. Um, you know, it's it only makes sense if it kind of all hangs together. Um, and so that was, you know, part of the reason for, you know, for, for making it so big um, was to get sort of a flavor for these different international experiences. And it's, it's certainly, it's not exhaustive, you know, uh, you know, there's not, I'm sure you could find more information on, you know, sort of West Africa or Burma or, you know, Latin America. Um, but then there would be a thousand page book and right. Right. <laughs> wanted to uh, write that so so i did want to sort of you know get sort of a good sample of experiences around the globe um but also try to use each of those chapters to kind of build a a a sort of an overlapping narrative right so like the first um you know case that we you know you have the introduction that kind of sets the stage and gives us a sense of the the scope and where the argument is going um and then i take you know take the readers all the way to russia Right. And so part of that is uh, I'm a Russia guy, you know, and but also I figure for an American readership, there is nothing further away from sort of, you know, the, the comfortable historical experiences of American history uh, than taking you halfway around the world and plunking you in the middle of Siberia. Right. And so mm-hmm. let's let's get as far away from the American experience as we can um, and see what it looks like in the Russian empire and uh, sort of, you want know, to comes to the rise of, of communism and so on. So chapter two looks at sort of, you know, temperance and anti czarist, um, anti autocracy right there uh, and, and, and communism. And then, you know, the next section looks at Sweden and the rise of social democracy. And then the next chapter looks at, you know, Germany and Austria, Hungary, where it becomes, you know, less of a, a socialist movement and more of a, a liberal movement. So each of these chapters is not only supposed to be sort of geographically representative, but also give sort of a different sense of sort of the political motivations um, in, in each of these uh, areas as well. So trying to, to you know, uh, double up and try to, to make not only a geographic point, but also, um, you know, sort of a, an understanding of the, the political motivations in all these places, too. 
Well, so smashing the liquor machine, um, it sets out to sort of um, to bust a lot of myths about prohibition's history and um, and in sort of um, re um, reinforcing your argument um, again and again um, throughout the book results in some very kind of quotable passages. Um, you say things, you write things like temperance and anti-imperialism go hand in glove. Vodka became synonymous with Russian culture, not because the Russian people demanded it, but because the state supplied it. Um, you you come to some conclusions about Ireland, which were uh, surprising to me as someone of Irish heritage, um, that Irish independence was born of temperance, um, things like this. Um, I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about... Um, whether um, the lines like these are a signal that your that the book is a polemic, in other words, how do you, how can you how do you show the reader? How can you show us that you've considered um, alternate points of view in terms of um, you know what was alcohol doing for? Were there positive um, benefits of alcohol? What was alcohol doing for people? Or was it just solely uh, all the way around the world a, to- uh, a, a tool of, of sort of imperial oppression? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting question, um, and uh, some of it's sort of you know stylistics and, and trying to challenge these preconceptions. Um, but one of the things that I think is that this kind of global perspective gives us um, is that it, it highlights some of the shortcomings in our own understandings and our own sort of, you know, received wisdom when it comes to, to temperance and prohibitionism. Um, because usually, you know, even the, the terminology that we use, we say alcohol prohibition, right? It's a prohibition against alcohol. Um, but if you go back and read, you know, what temperance folks and, and prohibitionists were talking about at that point in time, rarely did they ever use that phrase alcohol prohibition. Um, and that always seemed a little weird to me. And, and, and at some point, again, sort of based on this comparative perspective, uh, it clicked. They always talk about, they don't talk about alcohol. They talk about uh, the liquor traffic. And uh, somewhere along the lines, we've lost that word traffic. Um, and so, you know, it, they would argue that, um, you know, that's, uh, I'm not against drinking, like a, a prohibitionist would say, whether it's in the United States or whether it's in Germany or whether it's in Russia or wherever. They say, I'm not against alcohol. I'm against the liquor traffic, right? Um, uh, you know, people, if they want to drink in their own house, uh, you know, that's that's up to them. You know, that's their own individual choice. Um, but they say, what I'm against is trafficking in alcohol, right? Getting people addicted to stuff. And so it was the question wasn't one of being opposed to the, the liquor that's in the bottle. They didn't see that as evil. Uh, and they didn't see the, you know, the, the drinker as a sinner. They saw it. And this goes all the way back to the foundings of, of temperance um, as, you know, the one who was the wrongdoer was the person who was doing the selling and getting people addicted for private, you know, for private profit. Uh, and so causing immense social and societal harms, uh, for, for private profit. And so that was um, sort of the thing that uh, I guess in one case, we were talking about sort of the, the polemic side of it. Um, 
is that, you know, recognizing that it wasn't so much just about, you know, the role of alcohol in society, because there are certainly, you know, a, a lot of positives that you could look at in terms of, you know, being a social lubricant and, uh, um, you know, whatnot. But when it came to uh, sort of uh, the predations of, uh, you know, sort of using alcohol to get people addicted and then, you know, keeping them at the saloon until they, you know, drank up all their worldly possessions, you know, that was a bit of a problem, right? And so that was uh, in some ways trying to, to recognize, hey, I think we've been focusing on the wrong thing here. We've been focusing on, you know, the, the alcohol in the bottle rather than the, the process of making money off of it. And so that was kind of, you know, the, the shift um, that I was trying to, uh, to, to reinforce there. Um, you know, in terms of, uh, in terms of this, but there are also, I guess, in terms of being a, a sort of a polemic in terms of, um, you know, sort of offering some kind of highly charged, maybe contrarian views, uh, you know, once you kind of take this, uh, this, this perspective, it really highlights a lot of the sort of overlaid biases um, and understandings that kind of undergird our, our, our appreciations of history. Uh, and especially when it comes to uh, sort of colonialism uh, and imperialism, you know, so, uh, for example, uh, there are existing works out there when it comes to sort of understanding global temperance. Uh, and they would say, you know, when it comes to, you know, African tribesmen, uh, for instance, who uh, who took to prohibitionism uh, in, in South Africa or in in, um, in the Congo, uh, and they would essentially they would just kind of wave their hands and say, Oh, well, this guy, you know, this, this, um, you know, he was a convert to Christianity because of, uh, you know, we had these, um, you know, you, you had all these, uh, uh, religious missionaries that are out there and maybe they just took to this new religion with a little bit too much zeal. Um, and the problem that I found with this was that you had individuals, uh, you know, in, in around the globe, you know, sort of these subaltern populations who were embracing prohibitionism and fighting tooth and nail for prohibitionism, not because they were, you know, they, they took to Christianity um, with some sort of unmatched zeal, but because they understand, you know, they understood better than anybody else, you know, the, the harms that it was causing, right? And so it didn't take uh, necessarily a missionary to come in and say, oh, well, look, you know, we've got this, this morally upright, you know, uh, position. No, it's just the exact opposite. You know, it was, you know, the, the indigenous populations were the ones who were fighting against this, um, even against sort of these missionaries that were there as well. And so uh, it, it kind of reflected this idea that, you know, when it comes to colonial history, that it was, uh, that it was only the colonizer, uh, it was only the missionary, it was only the white people who had, um, you know, sort of morality and they had uh, an understanding of the common good, right? And so it kind of disempowered subaltern populations, whether those are Native Americans in the United States or African Americans also in the United States, um, or if you're talking about, uh, you know, indigenous populations in, in Botswana or in, um, you know, in, in Zimbabwe or uh, in, in the Congo, um, you know, that if all your focus is on, you know, sort of the missionaries and the religious elements, you're missing out on, you know, sort of understanding temperance and prohibitionism as this local empowerment movement, um, you know, by subaltern populations against that sort of predatory capitalism. Well, the book concludes with um, sort of three uh, 
big picture takeaways from this comparative history. Um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about them, and I would really especially um, like to talk about the the last one, which um, which I just uh, found to be fascinating, and I thought um, ties very well into a new podcast we have here on the New Books Network called How to Be Wrong. Um, and so, anyway, so but before we get to that, tell us what are what are the big picture takeaways at the end of the book? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the part of it is that we've, you know, it, it highlights uh, some of the shortcomings in the way that we approach history. Um, you know, I guess there, there are all, all sorts of sayings that you could wrap into this, you know, the, the old adage that, you know, uh, war is too important to leave to the generals. You can make sort of a similar argument that that history is too important to leave to the historians, that if we just all we do is narrowly focus in on. Uh, a, a particular topic or a particular question, and we say, okay, well, temperance and prohibition politics, that's, you know, a, a niche understanding in American history. And we're just going to, you know, focus in on, you know, this, this tiny little uh, segment of temperance politics in the United States from 1851 through, you know, 1919. Um, you're missing out on the big picture, right? And you're missing out on how integral it is to all these different elements. Um, and so it, it really does, uh, it is important to sort of, you know, uh, opening up the uh, sort of the broader scope of not only just American history, but global history as well. Um, and so in some ways, you know, the, the book, if I were to, to, <laughs> to give you just sort of a, a snippet on it, I know there's a, 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 you know, there's this new Matrix movie coming out, right? And it's, it seems to be... Uh, I, I did not know that. There's another one. Okay, news yeah. to me. <laughs> they're, they're rebooting sort of the, the matrix thing, but it, it's in, in many ways, it's like that, that red pill, blue pill moment that's, um, you know, that's uh, once you go down, you know, take the red pill. Um, you know, I think understanding prohibition politics is like that red pill for understanding American history that you're like, okay, something's not right here. You know, the conventional wisdom that we have uh, for what caused prohibition doesn't make any sense, right? The, the argument was like, well, it's, it's Midwestern evangelical Protestants. That's what it was. It was a reactionary movement. Okay, well then, uh, why was there no great awakening of American Protestantism at that point in time? Why was, you know, then people like, oh no, it was, it was women, it was women's movement. It's like, you know, that's what it was. It's like, okay, well, but the 19th Amendment, you know, giving women the right to vote came after the 18th Amendment. And so that doesn't make any sense either, right? And it's like, oh, well, it was, it was uh, anti-German sentiment uh, with World War One. It's like okay, but you know the the, the Congress that passed uh, you know the the Prohibition Amendment uh, was elected in 1916, which was before the United States got into World War One. Um, <laughs> you know, so like all these uh, conventional understandings, and, the, and even the the crowning achievement of the 18th Amendment. You know, if you understand it as a reactionary movement, how do you get the 18th Amendment passed at the height of the Progressive Era? Right? You know, so. None of it makes any sense. Uh, and so it became like this thing that if we go down the rabbit hole and try to understand sort of the, the global historical context, all of a sudden, all these things that never made sense in our received wisdom suddenly fall into place. You know, oh, well, it was, <laughs> uh, you know, the 18th Amendment came at the height of the progressive era because it was a fundamentally progressive movement against sort of this, uh, you know, big business, this predatory capitalism, this so-called liquor machine. 
Um, and so all of a sudden, all the things start to fall into place and make sense in a way that they didn't before to the point where, you know, again, with the red pill, blue pill thing, it's like you can look back, you know, after reading the book, you can look into the matrix, right? You can look in and, and read some other historical accounts that just don't get it, right? That they just don't see that, uh, you know, some of these, um, you know, based upon our, our previous misconceptions and preconceptions about uh, about politics, um, you know, so for example, you know, I'm looking over here in the corner, I've got David Blight's book on, um, on, on Frederick Douglass, right? It's, it's even bigger than my book. I think it's like 900 pages, right? It <laughs> won the Pulitzer prize. It's a great book on, on, uh, Frederick Douglass tells you everything you ever wanted to know. Um, but nowhere in there does it mention that he was probably the foremost temperance lecturer and prohibitionist of his day. Right. Because that doesn't make sense to the author. Right. That if if you have this and you've been told for generations that temperance and prohibitionism is a conservative movement. And now you're going to look at, you know, somebody like Frederick Douglass, who is the exact opposite. Right. I mean, he's for emancipation. He's for women's rights. He's for uh, civil rights and equality and democracy and all these sorts of things. If you throw in temperance and prohibitionism, that doesn't make sense to the author, right? And so it just kind of gets left out of the book in, in, in every way, right? So, um, so if you don't see it as being a central part of, you know, all these reform movements throughout American history, it just kind of gets left by the wayside. And we kind of have this incomplete result of uh, sort of understanding American politics, um, you know, if we just kind of compartmentalize and, and put things on and say, oh, this is just a niche thing. This is just some sort of uh, history of zealotry, American zealots, um, you know, talking about uh, temperance and, and, you know, wanting to tell people what they can and can't drink. Uh, there's quite a bit more to it than that. And once you sort of see that, uh, you know, it opens up so much more, um, you know, sort of the, the scope of not only American history, but global history as well. Well, I'd love to hear just a little before we go, I'd love to hear just a little bit more about how you came to see that, because the book has and I hope this isn't a spoiler for our listeners. The book has what I think is a very brave ending in which you um, you you state that your your first book, which was based on years of dissertation fieldwork and much study, was dead wrong. So can you tell us um how was it dead wrong and how did you come to realize that? Uh, yeah, it's not, not the whole thing was wrong. It was <laughs> the fundamental assumptions about, uh, about temperance, I think were wrong. Um, you know, and I would, I, I was able to parrot some of the, uh, you know, the, the conventional wisdom that I was raised on, you know, on understanding temperance and prohibitionism as a, you know, sort of conservative evangelical movement. Um, you know, my first book, which was based on my dissertation, was kind of a, a comparative analysis of alcohol politics and prohibition politics in the United States, Russia and Sweden. And the idea was to not just to um, figure out, uh, you know, what caused these particular outcomes, but to get a better sense of how ideas, you know, and this is, again, sort of that, that causal political science perspective. How do ideas, policy relevant ideas get filtered through different institutions uh, autocratic institutions in Russia or, or democratic institutions in the United States or, or sort of um, sort of a middle, you know, middle range uh, sort of 
uh, institutions in Sweden. How do those ideas lead to policy outcomes? That was kind of the focus, and that really is 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 separate from it. But I, you know, I admit that I completely bought into sort of the received wisdom uh, when it comes to the foundational assumptions about what caused prohibitionism in the United States. Uh, and so I look back and I'm like, yeah, I was I was wrong about that. That was, uh, you know, you've got a whole podcast now, right? On on <laughs> wrong. Uh, you know, there's this Catherine Schultz book, um, and she has a great TED talk on this as well. You know, an entire book on on being wrong. You know, and recognizing you know, uh, and uh, the the limitations of our knowledge and and our understandings. Um, so yeah, you know, at the end of the day, I was I was you know reading more and more into this and and um, you know recognizing that hey, I'm not above scrutiny here either. I'm, you know, my previous works were based upon what I thought was the uh, you know the, the the, the con- correct received wisdom uh, when it comes to temperance and prohibitionism. Um, but again, instead of just kind of, I don't want to say regurgitating, but, you know, sort of uh, echoing that understanding, you know, bringing, coming at it from sort of a more social science perspective rather than a, you know, humanities perspective or, you know, history perspective. Um, we, we always talk about trying to minimize errors and trying to minimize the opportunities that we are wrong uh, in our, our causal inferences. That's why we take big samples, you know, and, and we think those are more representative. Um, and so, you know, at the end of the day, I can't say with a hundred percent certainty that this is sort of the big T truth, that this is exactly what is, um, you know, what was actually going on at the time. And, uh, but you know, the idea is for us to be less and less wrong over time. Right. And so I think when it comes to, writing some of these, uh, you know, historical understandings. Uh, I think, you know, under, our, our history of understanding temperance and prohibitionism as a, you know, conservative evangelical movement uh, has been wrong, right? And we need to to correct that. Um, and ultimately, the final goal is to be less and less wrong over time. Um, you know, <laughs> so that was kind of the ultimate goal uh, of, of my books. And I'm, I'll, you know, ultimately if somebody writes another book that, uh, suggests that, you know, there are shortcomings in this one, that's part of the process. You know, that's part of, uh, the process of, of moving knowledge forward, uh, is, you know, accounting for those errors and, uh, you know, fessing up when, uh, you know, uh, when you've been wrong in the past. And so that's, you know, just, I guess the, the, the old adage that humility is knowledge, recognizing that there are limitations to what we know and, and what we can know. Um, you know, and, and trying to just, you know, get smarter over time. That's what lifetime learning is all about, ultimately. Well, it does. I, in, in my um, uh, point of view, it does open up um, a, a bunch of new questions for research, um, more narrow, narrower questions that could be explored by historians. Um, and it's just um, a lot of food, food for thought for general readers, too. So um, that brings us to our final uh, traditional question here on the New Books Network. Um, and that is, what are you working on now? What's next? Uh, I've got a lot of, you know, housework that uh, I've put off for <laughs> a couple of years. No, um, uh, I, I've got a lot of stuff that I'm doing here on, on campus. Uh, looks like I'll be heading up our, our Russian studies department. I'm sure that will take up quite a bit, a, a chunk of time. Um, but the other thing I wanted to do, and I'm, uh, he's, uh, he's, he's kind of a character in the book. He's almost like, uh, you know, uh, what is it? Virgil in, uh, Dante's Inferno. So sort of he's, he's sort of the, the, um, uh, the tour guide 
through Dante's Inferno and so on. Uh, I've got something of a character like that in this book. His name is is William E. Pussyfoot Johnson. Um, and with apologies to the Dos Equis beer guy, I think he's the most fascinating guy in, in the history. <laughs> um, and I, I've been working on writing his biography uh, for a long time, for, you know, for actually for as, probably as long as I've been writing the, the previous book. Um, and uh, he, he's just a, a fascinating historical character. He's, and uh, so he pops up intermittently in the book. You know, he's in the chapters on uh, on Turkey. He's in the chapters on uh, obviously throughout the United States history. He's you know, he went to um, India and met with the Indian National Congress and went to meet with Gandhi. He spent time in the Russian underground. He was, um, you know, he was a, a, a lawman in the, you know, the Indian country of Oklahoma and um, and so, you know, he's just this fascinating guy and I've been wanting to write his, his biography for a long time. Um, but when I was coming up for, uh, you know, for, for, uh, for tenure a number of years ago, uh, I had proposed this as, as my interest, this, I want to write this guy's biography He's a fascinating historical character, gives us a lot of insight into the, uh, you know, sort of the, the global history of it. Um, and, uh, my department chair at that point in time, who's a wonderful guy, uh, he says, um, he says, that's all well and good, uh, but a biography is not political science. Uh, we can't even <laughs> kind of justify that as being political science. He says, so why don't you focus in on this uh, this project that you're doing that's broadly comparative, that's broadly a, a, a political science thing. And he's like, well, once you get tenure, you can write whatever you want. And so he's like, save that one for later. I'm like, okay, I will. I'll save that one for later. So, uh, so that's what I've been working on for a while. Um, I don't know. It, you know, when that would, it will see the light of day, but it's uh, uh, a fascinating history of uh, a lesser known figure in global politics. And that's, it struck me reading the book. I thought reading the book, I said a, a different version of this book could just be a biography of Pussyfoot Johnson. And so <laughs> it's, um, it, it's, uh, it's a nice coincidence to hear that that is, um, that's happening. Yeah. He's just a, a, a fascinating guy i've been to his gravesite. i own like everything that he's that i've been able to find i've been to his house that he built in upstate new york have, have toured it. it's a wonderful place um and so he's just it's just a fascinating historical figure that uh again you, you know before they had like uh was it times person of the year award you know back in the 1920s they had it was the new york times they had this um it's very gendered and very specific is the 10 most famous American men. That was their list. And, and Pussyfoot Johnson was on that list along with people like Babe Ruth and, uh, and Thomas Edison and Teddy Roosevelt. And we know all those names, right. But we don't know this guy. Uh, and so I was like, what, what happened to him? Where did, you know, why did he go? From got, being... Because so, we got prohibition wrong. Is, right. Is, yeah. Right. So he's just sort of fell out of historical memory. Anyway, right. fascinating. Yep. Um, well, Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show and for sharing your work with us. Um, it was a real um, privilege to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been great.